Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. Today's episode is sponsored by Artist Strong's free challenge drawing drills. There is a formula to improve your art skills. The question is, are you using it? Carrie of Artist Strong has used her resources and experience as an art teacher and artist and research on expertise conducted by Anders Ericsson to design her own formula anyone can use to consciously build their drawing skill. It's outlined in this free seven-day challenge. Click on the link in the show notes to get started or go to www.artiststrong.com. This is a special episode of The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one painting at a time. And today, one live event at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Today's episode is audio from an event that I had the privilege of participating in at the PRX Podcast Garage in Alston, Massachusetts, which is a community podcasting space founded by the Public Radio Exchange. The Podcast Garage also acts as a community art gallery for local artists, and this event was the opening reception for two of these artists, the collage artist Aqua Holmes and the late sculptor Vuzi Maduna. As a local Bostonian art podcaster, I was invited to help bridge the gap and produce audio for the event in true Lonely Palette fashion by interviewing passers-by, in this case a bunch of podcasters, in front of Aqua's piece All Fly Home. Aqua and I then had a great discussion about her work, and then the evening was brilliantly capped with a curator talk by art historian Barry Gapier. And I hope you're able to distill from the audio what a truly incredible night it was. So without further ado, Keepers of the Culture, a celebration of Holmes and Medina at the PRX Podcast Garage. Thank you. So I actually have the distinct pleasure of introducing Equa, and I'll talk a little bit more about the podcast when we talk a little bit about the audio that we're going to listen to, because this is the podcast garage after all, so you're not going to get away with not listening to something. But Equa Holmes, um, she currently serves as the commissioner and vice chair of the Boston Art Commission, <laughs> and that's her cell phone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the one person, um, which oversees the placement and maintenance of public works of art in and on the city of Boston properties. Um, she has a BFA in photography from Mass Art, and in her words, she lives a life of art. Um, in the tradition of Elma Lewis, she lives this beautiful combination of community engagement and the nurturing and supporting of young artists that she was able to experience herself and instilling them with a deep sense of pride for where they're from. So, Aqua, come on up. The audio that you're about to listen to, if any of you have listened to the show, The Lonely Palette, I interview people in front of the artwork that uh, I end up doing the episode on. And people are terrified to talk about art. They're terrified of getting it wrong. And the reason why I like to interview them and get any kind of, like I just ask them for description. That's it, no art historical interpretation, just description, so that they can kind of recreate the in audio this, this mind's eye visual of what the object looks like. 
Um, and the less they know about art, the better, actually, because then you get really honest descriptions of what they see. And so at the last Maker Mingle here, um, I asked a bunch of podcasters who were terrified to have a mic in front of their face, which I thought was interesting, um, to describe this, this artwork. Um, and this is what they said. Is this thing on? It's on. <laughs> I'm looking at probably a painting, and the f is it a painting? Did I get it right? Kids wearing regalia in yellow submarine land. So I think this is all about movement. They're both almost in figure skater poses, and it's like they're chasing each other in a circle on a skating rink. They're dancing, their arms are out, they're, they seem to be flying, having a great time. Sort of the playfulness and the imagination of children trying on a different identity. And then the background is just this collage of incredible colors and patterns. And it feels like an urban garden to me. There's lots of brick, but also lots of plants. Um, and I just also am struck by all the different colors. Green, green grass, bright, bright yellow lights, a blue, blue bird, bright red on the bricks. It's just really gorgeous. And in the very middle, there's almost like a flame. Like a sunset, sort of. A really, really bright one. <laughs> this painting is a trip. It's a total trip. There's a lot of patterns and textures that are layered on top of each other. Some of them look straight out of like wallpaper, and some of them look imaginary. It, it looks like someone quilted it together, the background. And then there are these other things that don't really make sense in this image, like there's rulers and there's musical notes. The association I have with childhood and rulers is measuring your height on the doorframe. It's almost kind of that idea of you know growing up and the, the movement of reaching a new height that you pay so much attention to when you're that age. Um, so it reminded me right away of some children's books that I would have read to my daughters. I see the For Better or For Worse logo. For Better or For Worse. I actually don't know what that is. Oh my god, I grew up with that. Because that's like a Sunday morning comic about some white middle class family, right? Yeah, and these are black like, kids. Like my white middle class family. Right. Yeah. yeah. What's fun about collage is that it allows you to appropriate pre-existing elements from the world and bring them into your composition. In much the same way that podcasters go out and get actual tape of things people actually said in real places and then kind of splice them together into something new. Well, actually, first and foremost, what does it feel like to have to listen to your work be described by people who are coming at it and, and just being asked to describe it? Uh, it feels very fulfilling. Um, I have to say, everybody got it right, no matter what their perspective <laughs> was. It is a trip. It is psychedelic. It is about movement. Um, everything that they said was maybe not consciously in my mind when I was making this piece, but as they said it, I was like, yes. Yes, and yes. Um, so I've never experienced that before, really. Um, I love what you're doing, because a lot of times people will come up and say, you know, I love your work, but they don't get into the details of what is resonating for them. And you're able to draw that out. 
And as you said, Gina, this is a, a live person, whereas most mm -hmm. of the time you're dealing with artists who are, are long gone from the planet. So yeah, um, it's nice to actually share it with an artist and I have them here. <laughs> I'd love to have this experience again, and it will probably change how I interact with people if I'm in an exhibition to kind of <laughs> ask them, like, what do you see? So thank you for that. Um, but this, this whole idea of interpretation, because you have, you have the object, you have the artist, and you have the, the viewers who are really scared of not getting it. I mean, that's what I always run into when I talk to people in museums, that they're so, like I said, they're so scared of being wrong that they, they don't give it the time and they don't trust themselves and their own associations with it. And when you give people permission to purely talk about their own associations, that's when they start to kind of feel some ownership and some connection to it. And specifically with collage, you're using a lot of pre-existing imagery that means something to you. It's going to mean something else to somebody else. I mean, it was, it was my white middle-class family right. <laughs> um, upbringing, reading for better, for worse. And I wonder, kind of, how does it feel to have people have their way in be something that you didn't necessarily intend, and how their own interpretation of it is that okay? Is it okay if they kind of quote unquote misinterpret? I think it's absolutely okay because if it comes from a place of honesty, how can you argue with that? It's kind mm -hmm. of like that table of food back there. You know, you could start with the pepperoni, you could start <laughs> with the brownies. Who can say one way or the other is wrong? Yeah. Um, uh, what I thought was interesting about the recordings is there's a key element in this piece that no one talked about. So does that mean that I didn't get it right because people didn't recognize it? Uh, or does it mean that they would need to come back and look at it again? Because it's really difficult to take in a piece of artwork and understand everything about it in one five-minute viewing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess with art collectors, they find something that's intriguing that they want to look at again and again and again. Or folks like myself who go to the museum all the time mm -hmm. and look at pieces over and over. And after the 20th time, you say, oh my god, look at that. That's a bird or a plane or it's Superman, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you, it's, it's like getting to know someone. You don't get to know someone uh, over one cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. It's that 30th mm -hmm. cup of coffee where the story really comes out about why they became what they became and all of that. So mm -hmm. it's a relationship. Hmm. So what is that thing? Yeah. <laughs> I <mean. laughs> well, I, I don't know if I should say, but I guess I will. In the center of the piece, someone talked about it being a sunset or a flame. And it's actually a house. And the flame is, you know, the piece is called All Fly Home. And I, I feel like my work is very direct. It's not mysterious at all. Um, I enjoyed a beautiful childhood in Roxbury where I knew everyone on my street, where we played in the schoolyard, we made up games. And I haven't yet found anything a lot more interesting than that for me as an artist. I feel like there's just a lot of room within that to understand how children become adults, what things they take with them from their childhood, and, and in the end, I'm exploring myself. Um, so that home, at the end of a play day, everybody went home. And that home was a place of warmth, it was a place of comfort, it was a place of dinner. It was a hot bath to scrub off all the dirt of the day, and we danced there. Even though we might have wanted to stay out just a little bit longer, we still danced home to our parents, our brothers and sisters. So it's really a celebration of, of that. That's my intention. 
Now, someone else can look at it and tell me a story about it, and what's to say that it's not also about that? Mm -hmm. Where does your collage imagery come from? I'm not sure what you mean by that question. Um, so the the different um, patterns and and pictures and that you know you you okay. fuse together. So the Where truth will come out. From? I'm a hoarder, <laughs> and um, I have people say to me, and they're asking this question rhetorically. Oh, you must have boxes and boxes of stuff in your house, and I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> um, I never throw away magazines. I have. Um, telephone books, I have newspapers from 1979, maybe not quite that far back. <laughs> but, um, and it can cause problems because people come in the place and say, my God, what are, you, what are you doing with all this stuff? And I don't really know, but I know that it resonates for me and I need to hold on to it until it reveals itself, where it belongs in this artwork that I'm creating, or maybe where it belongs in someone else's artwork. Like, mm -hmm. who wouldn't have wanted to contribute something to Vuzi's uh, work, a spoon or a piece of wood that he would take inspiration from and create something around. So I, I've been thinking a lot about this uh, friendship uh, as I've been watching Lorraine Hansberry's uh, the documentary about her and how she was a part of this constellation of great thinkers and artists and singers and writers and how they fed off of each other. And I consider Vuzi a friend like that. Um, and the, the thing that I most remember about him is that he wasn't going to let you um, get away with not giving your full self to your art. Like he was mm -hmm. always going to challenge you on that. If you were trying to juggle two jobs and you were going to squeeze your artwork in on your vacation in the summertime, he wasn't going to sign off on that. He wasn't going to say that that was okay because he had dedicated himself to his craft and he was also about supporting other people who had to make that sometimes difficult decision to put their art first and foremost. Mm. I mean, for us, I think of it as a calling. Like, you don't just do it. You have to do it. And um, I thank him for that. <laughs> and you can see his dedication reflected in his work. So. When, when we first met tonight, <laughs> before this started, <laughs> um, and I was getting some kind of bullet points for your bio. Mm -hmm. um, you said, you know, I was expecting you to kind of launch into, you know, well, these are my degrees and these have been my jobs. And you said, talk about how I'm happy. Mm. And, right. and I also suffer mm. for my work. Yeah. And that it's, it's both. And I was like, okay, writing that down. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, is that something that we are meant to see that whole process in, in your work? Hmm. I think it depends on how deep you want to go. Um, something could just be a colorful expression that matches the sofa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and something could also tell you a, a deep story that resonates in your own life. It could be something that brings up painful memories, but painful memories that need to come to the surface. Um, Barry was talking um, when we were sitting there about every piece, every pattern that goes down is a decision that has to be made. Hmm. So you know how sometimes you're exhausted with decision making. I don't know. Um, 
sometimes on a date, you know, a guy might say, well, where do you want to go to eat? And I'll say, oh, wherever you want to take me. No, where do you want? I just don't want to make a decision about it because my whole life is decision making. Yeah. And the process of making art is like decision making after decision making after decision making. And sometimes you don't have it. And it's frustrating and uh, you struggle and you try different things and sometimes you turn it to the wall and you abandon it and and then maybe two years later you turn it back around and you know exactly what to do. So I don't know if people can see that looking at a work of art, um, but I'm sure that if they talk to any, any artist in any genre, they would find that same process of happiness and joy and suffering and mm -hmm. struggle, and it's all a great mix of life. Yeah, I think there are a lot of podcasters who feel that way too. I bet, actually. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you well, so I, much. Well, I wanna say thank you to you because as I said, I love what you do, but thank you to Gina, who's a dear friend and art supporter. Thank you to Lena and uh, Vuzi's family, who I feel connected to through his work. Um, Thank you to Barry for being here to kind of, I know you're gonna craft something really wonderful. And thanks to everybody that came out. I really appreciate this time with you. So I get to introduce Barry Gaither, who I have known since I was about 16 or 17 years old. Um, he's the executive director of the Museum of the National Center of Afro-American Artists, which is right at the top of the hill on the street that I grew up in. And before he came, it was a schoolyard that I used to play in and do th things like that. Um, Barry's work has been supporting artists in making their work better known, and I love this line, and more richly understood. So, Barry Gaither. <laughs> this is, as always, a singular honor because there's nothing that's a greater blessing than being in the community of the imaginative. <laughs> and uh, that's the community to which Vusi and Ikwa belong. Now, they are billed in this discussion as keepers of the culture. And that has two immediate implications. One is an obligation that stretches backwards, because a culture is not something made today. It's uh, a heritage, a legacy. It comes attached to history and place and cumulative experiences that are communal and family and greater. At the same time, there's an obligation to be an exponent of it, to express it in a new and ongoing way because every day is a new day and not a repetition of any past. To empower all of that is to understand that we know the universal through the particular. That an artist who dares to look closely enough at their own experience, time and space, and to do the spade work to make that fertile soil will yield for us a fruit that is accessible to all of us based on our humanity. Every cultural tradition develops a vocabulary for how it most expeditiously gets to express itself. 
When you look at the wall of Vusi's works on this side, these works draw on a set of principles that are intuitive, but that are also deeply cultural, and that he made a study of, but he also was willing to surrender himself to what knowledge is beyond the study. When you are studying, you learn the mechanics of how something happens. But you learn the mechanics so you can liberate yourself to express in an intuitive way the strength of that and not rely on the vehicle, but to make the vehicle the, expressing, the expression of what it is. So if you look at the second mask, for example, this piece relates to uh, universal African interest in the aggregation of materials. This is the kind of collaging and decollaging and piling on that was at the genesis of Cubism as a modernist movement in Europe at the beginning of the 20th century. This is the discovery that things have a realness that you can collect and multiply in its power by how it's put together. In the African context, there is the belief that everything has force and power and vitality. And in the African tradition, by aggregating them, you multiply and focus that power. So you could see the mask as its own very particular kind of grigri, the uh, powerful uh, totem that has force. So you see in a number of works, you'll have this kind of aggregation of materials. If you were, uh, for example, knowledgeable of Inkisi tradition in Congo, Angola area, you would have encountered already these mirrors in the form, often in the belly of the form, sometimes not. But they remind us that uh, we are the inside and the outside at once that we live by what we take in from outside of ourselves and by the magic through which we recreate it as ourselves. So we are at once the physical and the spiritual transacted through the prism that the mirror provides us. So there are these things that give us a way of reaching beyond ourselves. And we, as viewers, often rely and depend and desperately need artists to, prevent, to present us with these ways of seeing. Because we often suffer from the most universal of human conditions, cowardice which is the inability to actually make something, to actually create and put out there. Artists, I say, can never be cowards. I mean, if you choose to be a coward, you'll never be a very good artist because you have to risk the adventure of being in a forum. Everything you put out will get a response. They'll like it or not like it. 
And some people will be verbose about either of those. <laughs> so you'll be the subject of them. So that dialogue and the bravery to do it is something that artists bring. If you look at others of the works, you'll see a really intriguing usage of materials. We live in a material environment. We think of metals, for example, in many particular kinds of ways. We often think of it as hard machinery, not as foils or tin. But it's a malleable, expressive medium as much as it is a utilitarian one. And the reinvention of it as a way of masking and making a face is another piece of the imagination that allows the ordinary to be made into the extraordinary. Or if you take a moment to ponder color. Uh, we see in color, we see in light. And the polychroming in these pieces, the way in which color is played, is itself part of the animation of the piece. If you take the first sculpture with the superstructure rising above it like a Dogon mask, and just do this exercise. Close one eye and only slightly open the other one and look. And you see the form expressed fundamentally in terms of the light and dark of the white against the other colors. It becomes readable in its own way when you engage it in these kind of new and fresh ways of framing. Or consider the palette on the face of the mask with the uh, uh, kind of uh, hair represented by the uh, perforated foils, or the figure just here. All of those involve an understanding of techniques developed across the whole tradition and history of African art, but not simply replicated. They're digested synthesized and recreated for this community of Cambridge and Boston, which is where he lived out his life and executed his works. So he took something that might have been strange to us in its first setting, and he said, this is a cultural property that belongs to me. And because it belongs to me, I can reinvent it to be who I am here and now and to make it part of the exchange between me and those around me and thus such a community of work. Now, Equa, I've really known her for a long time. <laughs> I remember her as a student at the College of Art, sitting on the stone fence in front of the museum and long conversations. And I am involved with her on two or three other committees. So I know there are multiple ways that she expresses an abiding love for the community of her birth and her growing up. She loves that community and walks in it often.
and it knows her as she knows it. And in her work, she recreates vistas of that community out of the materials that are otherwise the throwaway materials of life. Newspapers, magazines, advertising, labels, these are all the stuff that consumer society generates and uses for a momentary purpose of selling this, that, or the other. Yet all of that material, insofar as it becomes the evidences of life and overlaps your own experiences, takes on other possibilities. And you can weave from it a story of life through the prism of the world as you know it. Romare Bearden uh, has one of the great masters of collage in the mid-20th century, and uh, he did a really huge collage of Harlem. And there are a zillion windows in these uh, tenement buildings in Harlem, and when you look in each window, there's another little episode happening. And you add up all of these episodes, and it's like a movie. It's like a story full of texture, full of possibilities. There are things that promise to tell you more, but they don't quite yet. There are other things only half hidden by the shades in the shadow. In Equa's work, she uses all of these uh, visions, these kinds of vistas, and she recreates them out of these boxes of materials that she was talking about a moment ago. There's also fabric and lots of other stuff mm -hmm. in all of it. But she also draws on uh, broader traditions that help to order things. And uh, when I look at uh, this piece, I can't help but think that these children running seem to be wearing crowns. They seem to know without someone saying that they come from something that matters and that their moment in the sun is also their moment of being the sun. And they run and they share that. Those brick walls that you see in the backdrop, they're at once a shelter and an enclosure. They're also warm brick. They're not the rugged stone. You know, in Roxbury, we have a lot of pudding stone. We have other darker stones. So these are vital and colorful kinds of stones. The further back piece just there, which rises like stacks, one above the other, with such an architectural sense, there, how can you not be involved in this dramatic play of color and shape and rhythms? How can you not see in it something of the tradition of quilting, so much a part of black American experience in the North and in the South? I say all of those things to say that when you think of these works, 
you can think of them as spent out of a particular place and time and experience. But you can also think of them as the cover for the life of the soul. In this case, for the life of the family, for the give and take of it, for the unconditional love of it. It's those things that resonate as the power of humanity that artists use a surface, a choreography, to make available to us. And they invite us to go deeply into that world so that we not only enjoy the delight of the eyes of things that are patterns and color and symmetry and that give us pleasure, but we also hear the echoes of life as an experience that all human, humans hear somewhere beyond that. When a viewer comes to a work, it's wonderful if they have the time to find out what the artist meant. But they often have no access to the artist. They're not there. What they have access to is what's in front of them and what they've brought themselves. And between those two things, the relationship has to be found. If the artist has dared to explore the human, it will be embedded somewhere in that work. That work will be endowed with a human resonance that someone coming to it and willing to give themselves to it will take and echo. Now the very last thing I want to say, because I've probably taken more time than I was given <laughs> or supposed to, but you know, at, at the museum we do a lot with, uh, I would say, lay viewers. These are people who didn't get an art history degree and they come to things just uh, based on their eyes. So I say, you know, there always is this simple way to get engaged with an artwork. And it will work for these works here, as it does for most works. Do a visual inventory. See what's there. That matters because it respects the decisions that the artist made. Because the artist chose to give you what you see there. Then, the second thing is, try to figure out the preposition of the work. What is the relationship? These children run. Run towards what? Ask yourself the questions, try to get the relationship, and then you interpret. Now the interpretation may or may not be a final one. It won't be. It will be a process. But if you've looked and given yourself the benefit of the crafting that the artist has done. And if you've brought your humanity and laid it bare, you will have an experience that is worthy. And these two artists have committed to sustaining a living tradition because they've been brave enough to do that work 
and to give us these bridges to life beyond the moment. Thank you. Special thanks to Carrie Hoffman and PRX, Alex Bronstein and the wonderful crew at the PRX Podcast Garage, Gina James, WGBH, and of course, Aqua and Barry. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub and Spoke, a new collective of idea-driven podcasts, and we will be back with new episodes next week.